Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. You know, some days it feels like all you can do is watch worlds burn, or drown, as the case may be. This is especially true for those of us who live in the path of a hypercane. What's a hypercane? I'm so glad you asked. In a frighteningly possible future, you'll be hearing more about them. As the planet warms and the climate changes, we're in for all kinds of new and bizarre extreme weather systems. So Hypercane is a hurricane so big and so powerful it extends through several states. Well, today on Cyber, we've got something special. Another short story from Motherboard's first book, Terraform. With me today on the show is one of the book's editors, Brian Merchant, and special guest Eric Holthouse. Holthouse is a meteorologist, a climate journalist, and the founder of Currently a weather service built for the folks on the front line of the climate emergency. He's here with us today to read a bit from his Terraform story, Hypercane. Eric? The National Weather Service has issued a Hypercane warning from Ocean City, Maryland, New Montauk, Long Island, effective until 8 p.m. Sunday. Radio crackled to life in the cab of the big Ford Super Duty EV. Silent, just as well. Mariana preferred to ride in quiet as the self-driving truck did its thing. And though she'd long been fascinated with the weather, she felt herself tuning out as the automated warning was broadcast through the sound system. At first, in the early 2030s, the new hypercane designation for super strong Category 5 hurricanes riddled her with fear each time one approached the coast. This time, the hype surrounding this storm was just annoying. She had work to do. And of course, she was headed inland anyway. The state police had reversed the direction of the eastbound lanes of Interstate 70 like they always do for these sorts of storms. And she was joined on the highway by a convoy of vehicles of all shapes and sizes, mostly families from the Baltimore suburbs, foothills of the Appalachians and Western Maryland, where the fast-growing cities of Frederick and Hagerstown welcomed them with open arms. Every time a hurricane like this hit, fewer and fewer of the storm-weary coasties decided to make the return trip. Mariana glanced to the left and then pressed her forehead against the Ford side window. She could barely make out the griming, hulking frame of the coal plant, the R. Paul Smith power station. The eerie and distinctive pale crimson glow of the plant's carbon scrubbers surrounded the complex in a mile-wide orb. She suddenly felt sick to her stomach, knowing that the next several hours could define the rest of her career. She'd heard from a colleague who was tracking a plant in Maine that during a recent power failure, that something may be up with those scrubbers designed and manufactured by EnviroCorp to suck planet cooling, planet, planet cooking carbon out of the sky. And now found just found outside of just about any major pollution source in the country. He told her he'd noticed some strange readings that may indicate a significant amount of carbon dioxide was actually escaping through EnviroCorp's carbon scrubbers. Strangely, she hadn't heard from him since. When the forecast for a rapidly intensifying hurricane first hit the newswires on Tuesday, she'd enlisted a few dozen of her friends and coworkers, anyone she could trust really, to see if they could help her find more, find out more on the off chance any of the scrubbers lost power during the storm. Tonight, all across the Northeast, there'd be data collected near EnviroCorp scrubbers to see what exactly they were hiding. Nice. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Eric. This, that, that, that was great. Um, and one of the reasons uh, we, we wanted that we wanted to have you on uh, is because this, this was, if, if, am I right that this is the first uh, fiction story that you've, you've published? Uh, right, right. Before? It's true. 
Right. It's the first work of fiction. And that's actually not, I, I mean, for some, I get fiction magazines, that would be strange, I guess. But I, a, a lot of of folks that are in, in these pages are writing fiction for the first time, whether they're, you know, climatologists or meteorologists as yourself or tech journalists. Um, so one thing that we did a lot over the years was try when we could to get folks who you know fiction wasn't their native language or or their preferred medium to to try their hand at this um and sometimes it just came out with with just such stunning results uh as in the case of this story which you know in this is it's kind of funny we're talking now because this is almost the exactly uh the five-year anniversary of this story um Mm -hmm. which i think if i remember right uh we commissioned because it was the anniversary of Superstorm Sandy, I think. Which, yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, commissioning it and and, and asking you to, to to try to spin something up about this. And you know, and we get a whole story. That's the whole thing. We get a whole sort of another lens. I mean, we can write a lot of you know op eds about why this is bad, why we should be worried about you know the growing power of, of storms. But then you can you know really kind of see and feel it through this story. Um, and a lot on a lot of different levels, which we'll talk about because yeah, we feel the urgency of the storm, but we also see sort of like the devastating short sightedness of trying to address this problem in certain mm-hmm. ways. Um, so let's get into that. Can you, uh, put yourself back in the shoes of 2017, Eric, and, uh, talk a little bit about what you remember thinking about while you were coming up with sort of the genesis for this story? Yeah, um, honestly, it was um, one of those moments where, um, there, like you said, there's just so much more that's going on that you can't um, can't get your hand around emotions as well in in you know a like standard repo- reported news story about a, we- a weather event. So um, you know. All of these trends are happening now, and it's even more pronounced seven years later. Um, after Hurricane Sandy, we've seen in New York um, sort of like how the city mood has has shifted, I would say. It was just back there um, last month, and um, yeah, there was still... There was still um, in the Rockaways, there was still sort of like notifications that were up about um sandy and like the the um the you know in the last minute had to be put in place to like reroute um, uh trains and all sorts of things that folks um had to do you know with what with what resources they could in the spur of the moment those systems are still in place right like they were not intended to last seven years so um so this is kind of that era of the climate emergency that we're in now is um all obviously that happened to a hundred X degree uh during COVID, where we all just like on the fly recreated new lives for ourselves um and tried to tried to um you know, take care of each other as best as we could. Um so even in the intro of this story, you know, there's the there's this talks about uh, basically like the permanent depopulation of the uh, uh, immediate East Coast, sort of like new social dynamic uh, that's happening within Maryland as that's hap- as that um, is taking place. People are reacting to it. Um, people are getting bored of it. If, if anything, you know, like what we would imagine, like mass displacement and chaos. Um, I imagine, you know, the same thing sort of happened uh, among me and my friends and family um, in now the two and a half years after after COVID. People get sick of, you know, like using hand sanitizer or using your mask and then there's backlash just out of boredom sometimes. So um, all of these things are happening already, you know. Yeah. And that's that's. Yeah, that's a, a memorable line. And this is like every time, every time it happens, you know, which is, I think, in the story, three years in a row, there's been this this uh, hyper cane, uh, f- you know, fewer people come back after they flee, um, mm. which is a good which is a good way of summing it up, I think, because it's, you know, it is not these 
long-term sort of planning decisions or the sort of the adjustments to infrastructure that we need. And that's kind of what you're just speaking to um, mm. just in, the, in your last answer. Instead, it's all these sort of band-aids, both on the solution side, which in this story take the form of sort of these high-tech scrubbers that are supposed to be pulling carbon out of the air, but the corporation never got around to actually installing the mechanism that would actually do that. <laughs> they just like kind of emit this red glow and broadcast mm. futurity. Let's, um, uh, let's, let's back up real quick, actually, if you, if you don't mind, yeah. can you de- define what a hypercane is for us? Um, and, sure. and give us the kind of the, the scientific basis for this thing coming around. Sure. So my, um, uh, the thought is, is pretty real actually. Um, you know, um, inspired by hurricane Sandy. So Sandy was one of those storms that, um, defied expectation and defied definition. Even the national weather service, as it was making landfall, decided not to issue hurricane warnings because it wasn't technically a hurricane. Um, it, had a a hybrid core uh, and um, was was deriving its energy directly from the jet stream rather than from warm ocean uh, temperatures. So um, this is something that I imagined, you know, like air, you know, and and when storms go through that um, what's called extratropical transition, it's a normal. Thing, um that storms do but sandy just uh uh didn't weaken at the surface um very much uh during as it was going through that process so um sandy ended up being the largest uh hurricane uh or tropical storm force storm on record in the north atlantic so it was almost six or seven hundred miles wide at the uh, at the peak, um, which helped to create a uh, larger storm surge on at the coast. So imagine, you know, if your arm, if your arm uh, is is like you know, three feet long versus like only your elbow is just like one foot long, you can move a lot more water with a longer arm. So this is the basically as as a hurricane uh, rotates, it is. Um, pushing water around in a circle, but pushing water in general towards the coast because the hurricane is moving towards the coast. So uh, Hurricane Sandy just had a massive amount of leverage that it could push water towards the coast, which is why storm surges were so high in New York City and why the subways flooded. So I would imagine, um, and this is what the predictions are, is that um, the size uh, and strength of of these storms will just continue to grow over the over the coming decades. Um, Hurricane Sandy was our first glimpse of a storm like that. So the idea with a hypercane is that you have a storm as large as Hurricane Sandy, uh, but you have retained in that very intense inner core as well uh, of you know 150 to 200 mile per hour winds at the core as well. So um, I, I, it's not really beyond the realm of possibility for a storm like this to take place in the next couple decades. Yeah, it's frightening. Um, so in yeah, and in the world, I guess we should have just set up this story from the onset. So there's this is a, this is a world maybe twenty years down the pike, twenty or thirty years down the mm-hmm. pike. I don't think we get a hard date. We do we do learn that they've sort of been designated hypercanes in the 2030s after there's Mm. been enough of these sort of large-scale events um you know we have there's self-driving cars and an occasion then these plants are automated so we've had these incremental advancements in technology um and then the story follows sort of a hurricane survivor right somebody whose family had lived through one of these disastrous hypercanes um and she has this this intel that these that this company and then after these you know that after the these hypercanes started um we the congress passed a bipartisan law that basically incentivized you know carbon scrubbing or removal it's one of these mm. sort of inter- five, five years ago this seemed like maybe more of a viable like kind of pre 
the sort of the wind behind the sails of things like the Green New Deal and other approaches. But for a long time, I think some listeners might have forgotten that like this, like carbon trading and carbon, like putting a price in carbon was kind of like the leading solution to, uh, you know, in, on, in climate policy. Um, and there was a lot of people who always thought it was a bad idea. Got to have uh, market-based solutions, Brian. <laughs> That's right. market-based. But you get market-based solutions and then you get... Which, honestly, like, when this story came in, I was like, oh, this is a fun story, fun depiction of this. I worried, even then, is this, like, a little bit of, like, a, a fringe thing? Could we really have, like, a corporation that, like, lurches the power fueled by sort of, uh, the yeah, this this need for market-based solutions that is then scamming, you know, basically uh, everyone uh, by pretending that it's actually drawing carbon out? And then it's... And then, since then, we've had things like, you know, the Volkswagen scandal where they weren't really, you know, reducing emissions. Exactly. So the same thing happened. Right? Exactly the same thing happened. You had more people uh, calling for, uh, you know, more sequestration, you know, instead mm. of, so it's not, if anything, with like the passage of something like the Inflation Reduction Act that sort mm. of bankrolls these like market-based solutions alongside some other stuff that we do need, um, I think you, it ends up that this is a yet another speculation that is more more prescient than we hoped it would be. Uh, can I uh, get, you know, ask, I know we, we talked about the hypercane side. I want to ask you about like why sort of, you know, when we were talking about doing a story about, uh, you know, about the rise of, of more powerful hurricanes and that element of sort of the climate crisis, why even then you sort of decided to, to, to sort of fix your story around this notion that, well, people are going to try to do something about it, but it's going to be like a corporate solution and they're going to try to, you know, uh, they're, they're going to try to game the system and profit off it while doing nothing. What, you know, do you, why was that your instinct? And, uh, do you still feel like it's a valid criticism? Right. You know, I mean, then this part was inspired by the original sort of like 1990s, early two thousands. Um, when it was, I guess was never truly bipartisan, but I would imagine, you know, in um, both Bush presidents, there was this kind of idea of like, oh, we'll just pay people to, um, yeah, I mean, like hardcore market-based solution on climate. Like, we're not against climate action. We just need to make sure that it doesn't ever affect the bottom line of the oil industry, right? So there was this coal to natural gas uh, switching that happened in the U.S. Um, where now, you know, the whole industry was uh, in the 80s and 90s, like 70% of our source of, of electricity. And now it's uh, natural gas that's like 60 to 70% of our source of electricity. Um, and with that has basically come uh, an increase in risk because methane is... 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide um, on shorter time scales, which is the exact time scale that we have to solve this problem. You know, five to 20 years is, uh, is about the time where we need to be getting down to 75% fewer carbon emissions in the U S um, turns out that even a leakage rate of, you know, one to 2% of natural gas completely blows out all of the, benefits of switching from uh, coal to natural gas. So, and that has happened. Like there's no monitoring in any effective way of these, uh, you know, Permian Basin in Texas or North Dakota, or like basically anywhere where there's been fracking, there's just thousands and thousands of dead wells that are more than likely uncapped, um, not, not able to be tracked in any meaningful way. And so, you know, Simultaneously, over the last 15 years, we've had this surge in uh, global uh, methane concentrations. Um, now, the, there's new data out in the last month or so that says that most of that new additional methane is coming from the tropics uh, and wetlands as they um, are being warmed by um and land use changes as well in the tropics, which is like deforestation. But um, 
but along with the Arctic melting permafrost, the major source of emissions of methane in the world is leaking wells from the national natural gas industry. So, um, so that has been that tried and failed market uh, policy. And like, I'd imagine that that's like, if you're ever going to get that 51st vote in the Senate, the way the Senate is currently structured, it's going to be a, a coal senator from West Virginia. <laughs> you know, like it's going to be someone who has deep ties to the fossil fuel industry or lives in a red state where they have to like, you know, like that's all it feels like unless there's radical uh, changes in stru- the structure of U.S. democracy, it's always going to be that way for the f- foreseeable future. I have a fun anecdote for you that I think speaks to <laughs> how all of this is being handled in some of these places. So I'm, I live in South Carolina now. I'm from Texas originally. Lived above the Barnett Shale in North Texas. Um, in North Texas, you know, Ross Perot has a lot of money, spends a lot of money. There is a Perot Museum. It's a science museum. A lot of great stuff in there. There's an exhibit that is all about fracking and how amazing the Barnett Shale is. And it is aimed at kids. Uh, it has a cowboy, like an, there's an animated cowboy that sings and tells you about the miracle of fracking and how this is going to be great for us and great for the environment. Uh, and even a ride where you can take a drill down into the ground, like a virtual kind of thing, and like feel the rumble of the drill or the, I, I don't, technically not a drill, but you know what I mean. Um, so just think it's, it's interesting to see the places where the market is a little bit more unleashed and the way these companies are talking to people about, uh, these new technologies and their, you know, their market-based solutions. Right. It is a fascinating technology and it has totally changed the world. I mean, it is amazing. Like, um, I would imagine that there has never been a technology like, uh, where you have simul, you know, I don't, I don't have any hard numbers, but I imagine that it is now. I, I mean, it is it supports sixty percent of U.S. energy supply in a matter of you know ten to fifteen years. Like that transition from a previously from a technology that pre- previously did not exist. Like that's what has to happen um, in renewables. But we're we're growing. Like you know, renewal renewables are growing faster than um, any other uh, energy source right now. But they don't have the, without government support, they don't have the energy to completely displace, um, you know, 60 to 70% of U.S. energy production in a matter of five years, right? Like, that's shocking how successful fracking has been. It has been because of all the subsidies that they've really... And, and, you know, like, a new fracking well is like a one-to-one... a capital expenditure for amount of expected revenue. Like those fracking wells die out every three to four years. They have to constantly be replaced. So it's just like a massive suck of capital and energy and, and um, land. And, um, you know, if, if, if anyone has ever traveled through fracking country in the U S it has totally transformed the landscape almost permanently. I can't imagine how that land that receives little rainfall per year would transform in a human time scale back to something that's recognizable as land. Like it just looks like a wasteland. Yeah. The Texas Midlands will never be the same, you know? Mm. Yeah. A lot of places won't. All right. Cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, cyber listeners, this is Matthew. Thank you for sticking around. We are back talking about hypercane. I mean, it, it, it is interesting. Like you said, it's a totally transformative te- technology. There's some degree of, and the reason that the, you know, fossil fuel 
the extant fossil fuel industries liked it so much is because it had some degree of like interoperability with right, you know right, right. um and that's one reason that's sort of harder to get the solar and, and wind going it's a completely new sort of supply chain and infrastructure mm-hmm. and um where it's completely different it's been around for a while but i and i think one thing that you hit on this story when you're thinking of new technologies is here is to me i fight reading it five years later reading hypercane it's it's almost like a parable about sort of the dangers of believing or buying the hype from any corporation or any market-based mm-hmm. solution wholesale because again like what this is i think it's envirocore or some fun mm-hmm. sort of like you know ominous sounding corporation uh <laughs> that has sort of like captured this this market you won a bunch of government contracts sold everybody on this like good thing you mentioned that it's so important to them that they burnish this good image to the to the liberal elites that you know that they're mm-hmm. they have all this content but it's really just entirely a smokescreen so it mm-hmm. is you know it, it is basically if they're it's the epitome in a way of pitching a technological solution where there's no there there, um, mm-hmm. which in a lot of ways is, you know, you've, you've been knee deep in sort of the, the green space for, for a long, long time. And since, you know, the entire century, this has been sort of the predominant mode, both on the liberal side, you know, and, you know, like solutions, you know, find, find the solutions. And there are some legitimate ones. Sure. Renewable technology is, you know, is, is going to, is important and will get us there. But then all of these other things, um, to what extent, you know, do you think it is a danger in general of being told that, you know, technological solutionism or there is a technological solution mm-hmm. um that is at the that is the core way to address the the, the climate crisis obviously it's got us not all not it hasn't got as far yet uh and has it left us in more danger than than you know more sort doing of nothing. grassroots yeah <laughs> more than yeah, worse, than, worse than doing nothing yeah so yeah. yeah so direct analog here to the airline industry which a couple of years ago um, created their first ever industry-wide uh, cl- uh, carbon ne- neutrality plan. Um, they called it carbon neutral growth, um, which means like uh, you know, air- airline uh, capacity is growing um, uh, f- faster, or demand for air travel is 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 by far the lar- the fastest growing source of carbon emissions. So, um you know, still we're operating in a world where half of the people on earth has n- have never been on an airplane before. Um and so, you know, it's still relatively rare to have um uh someone who flies more than once a year um in a global popu- in the global population. So, um in general, you know, people who travel a lot are are folks who um, are wealthy and have um, some desire to know the rest of the world, either through business or through pleasure, right? So, um, so the airline industry is very well focused on you know catering to like green sensibilities of their customers, uh, but almost all of their carbon neutrality plan is uh, is through offsets. And um, I don't know if anybody uh, watched the John Oliver uh, last week or the was it week before, but he talked about carbon offsets. And this is it's just like the OG climate scam, right, Mm -hmm. where it's just like we'll pay you we'll, we'll pay someone to plant a tree on your behalf in 30 years. Well, if it is if it survives, if the tree survives, uh, it will have sucked out the the carbon emissions from your one hour flight. So um, you can imagine like the Ponzi scheme nature of this inherently. Um, But I think that uh, um, so, so yeah. And it's always Um, been that way too. It's, I feel like there were investigative reports. I remember reading a Harper's story about this, like 15 years ago or something like that, something crazy 10 years ago. And it just didn't matter. It didn't put a dent in the armor of this sort of approach where it's like, 
well, this is all we can do, so we got to keep doing it. Like, we'll do it better. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll plant more trees or make sure that there's some sort of oversight it's, program. It's indulgence buying is what it is. It, exactly. Right, 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 right. Yep. You know, in the, the, the middle, the, the, church, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages knew that rich people were going to sin. They're going to feel bad about it. So they set up a system whereby rich people would come in, say they felt, get, felt guilty, and give a bunch of money to the church. This is the same thing. It's people that know enough about the climate crisis to feel bad about their personal consumption habits paying a tithe to wash the sin away. That's what this is. And that's what it's always been. Hmm. Yeah. So um, impact, further empowering the fossil fuel. And I mean, and Delta Airlines owns their own uh, uh, refinery in, in New Jersey. So like, uh, jet fuel is the number one expense of any uh, uh, airline company. So, um, uh, I, without getting too far into car- carbon offsets as a technology, I mean it's a brilliant technology, right? Like it plays exactly on on the needs, uh, self defined needs of someone who buys it. So, um, so I think that um, you know. That's what the fossil fuel industry is doing, has been doing for, you know, since climate became mainstream in the late 80s. Um, I think that uh, the fossil fuel industry has been manufacturing demand for fossil fuels in a way uh, that they kn- know that the game would be up eventually, right? Like, it's not going to work forever. Um, and now it's carbon trading, and now it's offsets, and now it's like... Um, EVs instead of uh, pedestrian-friendly technologies, right? It, or it's like, um, off, you know, um, electric airplanes instead of, uh, or helicopters or something instead of, I don't know what they're coming up with, but instead of, you know, building out uh, a, a true, like, you know, like rail and bus system in the U.S. that that could actually meet our needs over the next 50 years. So, you know, all of that's going to take a, a huge expenditure. But we found somehow found the money in the 1950s to pay for the interstate highway system, right? Like, this could be that moment where we say, like, you know what? We're going to spend $2 trillion and fully build out passenger rail, buy out, buy out all the um, buy out all the right-of-ways and all that stuff and just, like, make it happen. Um, yeah. That, that would not pass in a bipartisan Senate right now. As yeah. as we've seen, so yeah. it's a matter of structural democratic reform. I think is what it's going to take to to make these technology. The technologies that actually can get us there are going to need some help uh, uh, from the federal government. And the only way to get that help is through structural democratic reform. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take radical radical change in some ways. I mean that. You know, it's one thing to even build, although I think there are valid analogs there, like in L.A., where they actually did tear up the light rail and then put roads in. You know, we can tear up the roads and put the light rail back in uh, mm-hmm. if we were so incentivized. Um, you know, it it is it is just, you know, the hardest, as you well know, like the, the pro- all of these, you know, structures that have all these sunk costs that have gotten quite accustomed to generating profits on a massive scale that, you know, whether it's, then it overlaps with the automobile industry and the fossil fuel industry, you know, getting that we, I think the lesson of the last 20 years is dangling a tiny carrot in front of them saying like, Hey, you can make a little bit of money. If you draw down carbon emissions is never going to amount to more than a drop in the bucket. Even with these in, increasingly Byzantine financial, you know, structures and incentives, like we just haven't seen the you know carbon offsets are you, you know they get a few people yet maybe to 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 f- throw a few extra dollars when they're buying their flight maybe it you know assuages some policymakers for a few years here and there but it it's pretty clear that it has not affected the bottom line in any meaningful way so you're i think you're right the only way is through more radical systems change and i think what we were starting to get at with that, with the fact that you have this technology at the center of your story that is basically uh, a distraction, or it's doing more harm, more harm than than nothing, because it's giving people the the impression that something exactly. is being done. Um, right. And they you can know, continue about their 
continue about your lives and continue consuming, right? Um, right. That's the whole point. Right. And that's the whole point. And that's the thing with that. That's something so tricky with the airline industry because nothing short really of a policy change there saying like, you can't do this at this scale anymore. Like we just, mm. we can't, I mean, as long as we have jet fuel at the, could you still, cause you don't, do you still not fly? I know. Um, a- I, I have transformed into one flight per year and it's like a family uh, reunion type of flight that where it seems like, you know, that is something that is making my life sustainable on multiple dimensions rather than just being completely black and white about it. Like, think that when uh Can you talk about that for just yeah. one sec because i know at one point sure. you made a decision not to fly at all right 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 yeah so um uh i think it was around um 2013 2014 um uh when um the previous ipcc report came out um i basically had this and up until that point, I was definitely way more on like the tech tech and transform things and could uh, be the leap we need, uh, you know, like some massive uninvented technology could save us, you know, king in fantasy world a little bit. Um, and, and and I just had that sort of like pulled an all nighter to do my my file my story on the IPCC report and then just realized like uh, it, it it's like it's radical social change at this point is is the is the quote technology that we need right um, and I think that you know I couldn't justify anymore being a daily reporter on climate without the very basics on my own life to to kind of think about that um the conversation has has shifted at the at the time uh airline emissions were about 75 percent of my carbon budget so you know if if that's what we need to do is to radical reduction emissions um in the span of less than a decade and I could do that immediately, basically. Um, I could cut my own emissions. And if everyone did that, but of course, like, that's, you know, uh, that's not possible to just, like, enforce a black and white solution on, on people. Um, and also, it it, it uh, is dangerous to think about internalizing the harms of the fossil fuel industry because then you get um, burnout among folks that really care, right? Like, on the front lines of the climate emergency are not responsible for creating this problem. Um, right. At the same time, you know, we can reduce our own emissions, but also have our main source of energy go towards transformational change. Like you can do both. You don't have to choose one or the other. So um, yeah. that's kind of where my thought has evolved over the last uh, 10 years or so on flying. Um, I, you know, recently turned down a second flight, uh, family reunion flight this year um i didn't i didn't go uh, because um it was going to require a flight so and it hurts to not see your family but also it hurts to know that you're participating in something that's damaging um people who don't have uh, ability to take those actions so i have a question from the audience um, what are your feelings about wind solar tax credits to my uninformed eye? They seem to operate at a scale that drives meaningful investment investment and the inflation reduction act changes seem poised to significantly increase construction. What say you? Yeah, no, I think it sounds great. I mean, that's exactly what we need is to shift, uh, subsidies from the fossil fuel industry to, uh, the renewable, uh, industry have truly zero emission power sources so the goal here is not net zero carbon emissions globally the goal is zero carbon emissions globally any solution that gets us to zero carbon emissions globally is something that we should be working for that works in line with um with justice right well that works in line with making sure that we are building an equitable society at the same time so we we cannot we cannot have solutions that further the inequality and the divide that the climate emergency has caused. Um, we, ha- we we can and, and have to repair both of these problems at once with the same set of solutions. 
Yeah, and 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 I would add that I think your critique is not that like there are it's not that there are no good technology and we should incentivize the things that have been proven to work and that in many cases are like a great thing for a community that can provide like stable employment and like and and can if they're you know deployed and implemented well and fairly um especially but yeah like we know that you know solar works we know that wind wind turbines work there are caveats of course and supply chain issues and things but we know that there are technologies that can do the right thing, but it's when you when you open up this space and you say, you know, technology will save us, or there will be there is something that will that will deliver like a, a broad solution. You 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 do crack the door for for technologies that wind up either being outright you know scams or or boondoggles. We have these huge carbon sequestration plants. You, we just have to be extremely suspicious. We have to interrogate the technologies that that enter into these uh, e- equations, um, and things like just fully incentivizing the removal of carbon dioxide, um, you know, and allowing all of these projects to do it. Like there are some great carbon, you know, removal projects or carbon sinks. There are things that are that are good, but when you operate it on this purely for profit sort of schema and you have like all of a sudden golden and Sachs is in the business of trying to maximize its mm. carbon offsets you're you're going to wind up with a lot of you know poorly performing projects fraud and in some cases things that again work worse than than if as if it were nothing i mean the big old carbon sequestration plant that i think it was was it was it W that that funded that back in the day? It was billions sunk billions of dollars into this carbon mm-hmm. sequestration plant, and then even the plant's operators just had a op-ed in the Times that said, "Like, no, no, doesn't work. Don't do this. Mm-hmm. This was this was a bad idea." Uh, Brian, I've got a question for you. Actually, can is here here? So we've done this would be the fourth one of these we've done uh, talking mm-hmm. about terraform. And it, it occurred to me reading Eric's piece that there is something that fiction can do when we're dealing with these big issues like climate change that to so many people are either abstract or feel completely overwhelming. There's something that fiction does that Terraform, I think, does uh, that regular journalism cannot achieve. Right. Can y'all talk about that and like how these stories personalize things that are happening all around us? Yeah, like I said at the top, I think that it's it's the emotions that you get in in fiction. Um, uh, That does. I mean, this is what has been missing from the climate uh, debate for 30 years is that it was pitched as uh, a science and tech issue. It is really a people issue, right? It's about who lives and who dies and where do they live and, and where you can travel and what you can eat. And like nothing is more personal than climate. And, and I mean, climate is literally like the definition of environment, right? Is, is the earth. It's everything that we know. It's everything that we are. So, um, you know, tapping into the, the guilt and shame and fear and anxiety and and everything that people are feeling right now around climate that like, even in climate spaces, it's kind of difficult to have these conversations. So like anyone that's going to go full force into these emotions is going to be sort of successful as a fiction writer, I think, because they're giving space to people to feel these things. Yeah, I would say that's exactly right. I mean, and that's, not done enough. I mean, famously, like our entertainment industrial complex has had a hard time figuring out, like, especially to do like, you know, big budget. It's and it's getting there closer now. And but look, when something like, you know, don't look up comes along, it's a huge hit. Because you can debate all day long whether or not it was a good or a great movie or whatever, but it just touched that nerve that that like sort of universal feeling that people have about things going catastrophically wrong on this huge level and nobody seeming to be able to do anything about it on a, on a, in the, in the, you know, the halls of power. Um, and it, like it, it, you could see how effective and how visceral the reaction to that mm. was. And it was on a different level than again, reading your op-eds or your, uh, your climate reporting, which, um, and I'm never going to pretend that like fiction is, 
like does anything that does anything as important as just sort of like you know grassroots level organizing or community organizing or that or you know on on that level that's always the first and most important thing is building building power um but there is a conduit you can tap into that you don't like like eric is saying an access to sort of like uh, to 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 an emotional level a, a space to sort of work through some of these possible futures um, in a way that isn't just looking at numbers on an IPCC report, a way mm-hmm. to sort of compute and to sort of process this and, and sometimes seeing a protagonist go through this or seeing an experiment. Um, we've had just some really great things that have re- helped me personally. Debbie Urbanski uh, wrote a great piece called An Incomplete List of Things We Tried, which someone who covers... Mm-hmm climate or had or used to cover climate more on a daily level i've seen them all i've seen up to a certain point when she goes mm-hmm. into the future you know she works back it's these things like turn off the lights when you leave a room and then all of a sudden it's mm-hmm. the extinction you know of the of trying to send generation generation ships out to the stars mm-hmm. uh, you can trace a clear line and saying oh okay this is a new way of communicating the fact that we are on a trajectory that is dangerous Mm -hmm. and it can raise the hair on your back a little bit in a way that um you know other things can't um we have got another great story uh, called 1000 cranes that kind of tells the story of 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 a family it's a it's a maybe the most horrific story in our in the collection that they're fleeing sort of the what new wild wildfires and it's based on the story of some of a of of someone who survived uh Hiroshima uh, for mm-hmm. a little while, um, and who sort of dealt with it by folding crane after crane after crane. Mm-hmm. It's about a woman who who's folding cranes for her for her children who are who are choking from the wildfire smoke as they seek higher ground and they're climate refugees. So there's ways of sort of that that it just you know I think it's good it's cathartic to sort of enter the fiction space especially folks who can do it well. Um, I think somebody who, you know, has the expertise on the science side, like you, Eric, and then saying like, well, this is how I am imagining one possible future, like step into my world mm-hmm. for a while. It helps us sort of better relate to, you, you know, your body of work and to sort of, you know, the what, what, what climate science is saying, the future of, um, you know, hurricanes and, and, and perhaps hypercanes are. So, yeah, I think it can, I think it can do a lot if we let it. And I think it's, the reason why we devoted a, a whole third of this volume to climate stories, basically, so the whole section burn this the section in which um, you know this is watch worlds burn. This is the f- third and final section, the section that Eric's story appears in. Um, all sort of deal in one way with sort of the climate crisis and sort of ex- exacerbating inequality. Um, so yeah, I hope folks you know get some of that any or all of that out of spending some time with these stories and stories like mm-hmm. Eric's. I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts, Eric, or any, any final words? I mean, my only thought is, um, you know, my traject, my personal trajectory since I wrote Hypercane, um, was I ended up writing my own book, um, the future earth, which kind of expands on a three decades look, uh, the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, uh, about what path we could be on if we decided to do it. Right. If we decided to say like, you know, transformational social change is what the IPCC says we need. Transformational social change is what, you know, on the ground frontline organizers say we need. Let's, can do it right like let's let's um put everything into it and and then you know even still we're gonna have these you know like escalating glacier collapses and like rapid sea level rise like those that stuff is baked in no matter what happens at this point so as we are navigating the future um this was this was like a, a a hybrid of fiction and nonfiction. this book ended up being you know, it's set in the future, but it's very factual. Like it is based entirely on peer-reviewed science. Like nothing happens in the book that has not been uh, like made possible through uh, through science. So, um, so that was kind of that's an extension. If you're looking for something else to read after reading Hypercane, um, my book, The Future Earth, is is something 
Um, that's a lot more on the inspiring side. Um, and then I have a project that I started called currently, um, which is more of a, um, what's it called? Um, service uh, or a tool yeah here here and now action oriented way of making that world in the future earth happen so we right now have a network of um of dozens of cities around the u.s we i've assembled a um uh sort of um group of meteorologists that are wanting to work in their communities to deliver weather information to folks in the front lines folks that uh, don't have English as the, for their first language and trying to build out what I think a weather service should be in the climate during the climate crisis. So we are focused every day on weather, um, just as your weather app does. We we can provide sort of like um, personalized two way uh, interactive weather forecasts um, via uh, SMS um, and we also are building communities at the local level to sort of advocate for change. Um, so that's currently uh, currently yeah. hq.com. Yeah, and you can follow that on on Twitter too. It's is it's it's associated with Twitter, right? Yeah. It's at it's it's at currently on Twitter. At, okay, yeah, and get the future Earth. I just had my book. It disappeared under a pile here, but yeah, <laughs> the future Earth is great. Uh, it's really a fantastic book. I can't believe we talked about speculative fiction and climate change for an hour with that. Uh, mentioning that before that point, because yeah, it, it is, it's a great example of using sort of both those strands and tying them together to make it more than, more than a, um, a sum of its parts. I, 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 I really recommend that book. Um, so, you, yeah. Thanks. You know what else, you know what else you recommend? This one? Terraform. <laughs> yeah. <I recommend> that. <laughs> you want to read, if you want to read Eric's full story, Hypercane, you can find it in Terraform as well as a That's bunch right. of other wonderful stories where you can watch worlds burn. I am Matthew Galt. Brian, thank you for coming on uh, Cyber for all of these episodes. Claire Evans is your partner in this. Uh, fellow editor also is here for three of them. Sad she's not here today. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Eric, thank you for coming on and giving us this reading and walking us through your story and the power of fiction and what we need to do about climate change. Uh, if you all are listening to this as a podcast, we did stream this live on Twitch, and you can watch it too at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV. Follow us there, and you'll be notified when we go live. Maybe catch the next live show and be able to get your questions in for the guest. We will be back a little bit later this week with another story uh, about the, the, the horrifying present and possible future that we all live in. Goodbye, everybody. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.